Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Justice Ginsburg? How would a ruling against you actually alter our democratic processes? She was just a real human being, stood up for the rights of all of us. I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman. Now it says the president is supposed to fill the seat, right? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to fill the seat. They broke precedent, broke their word, broke the norms of the Senate, and in fact, maybe broke the Senate itself. Those are voices associated with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, including Justice Ginsburg herself in the final oral arguments of the most recent Supreme Court term. You also heard a Stanford resident at a village, somebody screaming about filling the seat. I don't know who that guy was. And uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal actually talking to me earlier this week. I'm Colin McEnroe. Lucy's out today. I'm guest hosting The Wheelhouse. We know that that can never be a good thing. I should say we're not going to talk about uh, Justice Ginsburg right now because for some of you, if you're listening live at nine, uh, you'll be breaking away right around right around nine thirty to coverage of some funerary uh, ceremonies uh, that's offered by NPR. The rest of you uh, will get the entire show if you're listening to the podcast or the 8 p.m. rerun. And if you don't get to hear the second half of the show live today, you should find the podcast or the 8 p.m. rerun because we will be discussing important things in the second half. So on the panel today, oh, this is so exciting. I've never done the wheelhouse with him before. Uh, John McKinney, former Republican state Senate minority leader. Welcome, John. Well, thank you for having me. I, I got a little nervous when I heard you were hosting and not Lu- Lucy, but I'm here. No, you're, I'm here. Your, your nervousness is warranted. Um, all right. And also the hardest working person in Connecticut journalism, Christine Stewart, owner and editor in chief of Connecticut News Junkie. And as if that were not enough, now also a reporter for NBC Connecticut. Christine, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. So let's begin in the world of COVID, uh, as we so often do. And Christine, I'm going to have you get us started. Uh, Governor Ned Lamont, in the midst of all the other stuff that he uh, has to do every week in terms of uh, updates about COVID, also talked about the assembling of a new panel to somehow or other vet onrushing vaccines uh, here in Connecticut. Tell us a little bit more. What is this panel supposed to do? So I don't think that it's a panel that's going to necessarily vet the vaccines. I, I think that we're we're hoping that those vaccines are are vetted um, by you know the the FDA and the appropriate parties. Um, it's on how to distribute um, the vaccine and basically how to give people confidence in the vaccine once we we do have a vaccine. So um, this new advisory group is going to be meeting in in public. And it's going to establish priorities for handing out the vaccine. Um, what I actually find really interesting about um, COVID, um, as opposed to other other viruses and diseases, is that uh, in order to reach herd immunity, uh, we're probably only going to need about 60% or 70% of the population to be vaccinated. So it's not going to be like measles, where you have to get 95% of the, the population vaccinated. So we don't have to necessarily have everybody be confident in this vaccine. 
Or, wow. Although that's going to defend Go ahead, John. Yeah. Then. The anti-vaxxers can rejoice. Is that, <laughs> is that what we're saying? Well, I want to come to that in just a second. I do want to quickly point out a lot of that will depend on the protective efficacy of vaccines. So in a lot of the trials, the protective threshold is only 50 percent. They would really like to be 80 percent protective if they can possibly get there. But there's a big gap between those two things. If you if you vaccinate 60 percent of the population with a 50 percent effective vaccine, you really have only vaccinated 30 percent. You only protected 30 percent of the population. So it'll depend on that. But, John, I think to your point, and I like to, to develop this a little bit more. You know, there's always a group of people, we call them anti-vaxxers, they don't want to get their kids vaccinated for measles to go to school. But now the the, the marketing of this idea and, and the assurance, uh, to Christine's point, that these vaccines are, are safe for everybody to use, it seems like a much more complicated process. The uh, communities of color have their reasons for downing a new vaccine. There are people who don't trust a thing called Operation Warp Speed. It just sounds like it might be running through some stop signs. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How, how do you talk to all these skeptical communities at once? Well, uh, I wish we could take politics out of it. You know, we've got the first presidential debate coming up next week. Uh, and I think it would be great if uh, both uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump were to say to America, um, this is going to be done through the regular process uh, with FDA approval, uh, with government scientific approval. Uh, the companies that the pharmaceutical companies that are doing this have all pledged that they're not rushing this. Um, it will have to meet the standards that any vaccine would have to meet. Let's take this out of politics. Uh, I know that's not going to happen, Colin. Um, so I think post-election, uh, um, maybe uh, people will talk uh, you know, less about the politics of the vaccine um, and more about the efficacy. I, I think another interesting point, just to talk about how it's distributed, at least from what I've been reading, at least two of the three leading candidates all have to be um, refrigerated uh, at certain degrees in order to uh, work as well. So that adds to the complication of, of the distribution process. But um, look, we're gonna have a percentage of people who aren't gonna want a va the vaccine. We're gonna have a percentage of people who are gonna wanna wait to see how others react to the vaccine before they take it. Um, but I don't think that's uh, gonna be a problem at the end of the day. Right. By the way, those refrigeration chains, as they sometimes call them, in other words, you got to make sure they're refrigerated all the way to the point uh, of of use. Uh, and some of these vaccines require very, very low temperatures. I think one of them is uh, minus 70 centigrade. So, I mean, this is that is a specific logistical challenge. Christine, it did seem at the time of the announcement that Governor Lamont was directing quite a bit of his his rhetorical energy towards communities of, of color, even going so far as to say that he wants to reassure them that this is no Tuskegee experiment, although that seems like kind of a low bar to clear. But but I, we know what he means, right, that there's a certain trust factor that doesn't exist. Right, that there is a, a certain trust factor. And I think that they they understand that that there is a trust factor and they're going to have to get over that in order to get the appropriate amount of people vaccinated. Because what's also interesting about this virus is that um, even if you have had it, so say you have measles, you get, uh, you know, basically you get lifetime immunity from ever getting measles again. Um, and with COVID, 
what happens is uh, for whatever reason, you begin to lose your immunity shortly after um, you have it. So vaccination might be the only way um, forward to protecting people. Yeah, I mean, although scientifically, because it's a new disease, it's only really six months old in the population. We really don't know exactly uh, what kind of persistence there is uh, in immunity. We don't have enough cases, I I don't think. Uh, But yeah, probably not everybody will have immunity that holds. It may have be also may be connected to the severity of symptoms, the the degree to which the disease manifests big in a person. That would probably create more uh, protective antibodies than. A mild case, but we're we're building this bridge and walking across it at the same time. Uh, it's hard to know a lot about it. So just to uh, talk about a related thing, uh, I think it's also a little bit of a shock when somebody you know or somebody you're very familiar with suddenly tests positive. Uh, this week, it was Re- Representative Johanna Hayes from Connecticut's 5th District. Uh, she uh, not only tested positive, but she uh, posted a video of herself getting tested. Today, she's posted this rather touching and and a little bit unsettling handwritten note uh, on Twitter about just sort of how she's taking care of herself, what her symptoms are like, uh, what position helps her breathe. Uh, she's, she's not getting uh, off scot-free or asymptomatic on this one. And so one of the things that she's saying, uh, John McKinney, also is people think members of Congress are tested all the time, and that's not the case. I was kind of surprised to find out. I, I mean, I just sort of did, I guess I did assume that members of Congress are tested all the time. Well, I, I was surprised to learn that, too, uh, especially because when uh, states, and as Connecticut did, imposed quarantines, if you're traveling from certain areas, members of Congress were exempted from those quarantines. Um, so I always and that made sense. Right, Colin, you mm-hmm. you know, you're a member of Congress and you come back from D.C., uh, you quarantine for 14 days. It, it didn't make a lot of sense for them to do their their jobs. Um, but I always assumed that they would be getting tested in lieu of the quarantining to keep them safe and others around them. Uh, it, you know, they have so many perks that are so unnecessary for them to have. Um, this I would not consider a perk. It's very bizarre that that they're not getting tested. Right. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, Christine, was Johanna Hayes, very transparent about the process uh, of of getting tested, mentioned going to a couple of urgent care places uh, and kind of striking out. And I'm thinking, you know, it's obviously not good in any sense that Johanna Hayes uh, has a case of COVID-19. But there is something that's helpful with somebody as prominent as her when she's describing some of the difficulties she was having getting tested up here. I mean, not only is there not apparently a comprehensive uh, program in place in D.C. to test members of Congress, but somebody who's a member of Congress up here had a little trouble finding out where to get tested and how to get a test, which I think is a you know more common experience than maybe authorities want us to realize. Yeah, I think that it's eye-opening. Um, you know, it, it's not as easy as um, calling 211 and, and trying to figure out, you know, where the closest testing site is. Um, there are only certain a certain number of tests given at some of these places uh, on, a, on a regular basis. And, um, you know, you don't have to be symptomatic anymore to get a test. Um, you can go get a test, but I think that it just goes to show that it's, it's not as easy as um, 
as the the bean counters would have you believe. <laughs> All right. So, and I mean, another part of this also is, and and once again, I salute her for her transparency. Trans, transparency. And when this handwritten note went up today, I thought that was really, I hadn't really seen anything like that. Um, and and one of the things that she's saying also, which is important, is I mean, we obviously think and, and hope that her disease is not going to, for example, hospitalize her. But she's making it clear that you can have a low symptom level, a fever that's maybe controllable by uh, with Tylenol and and, uh, and not too many other symptoms. But, you know, her breathing is really labored and she's struggling to find a position where she can breathe comfortably. People should understand that you don't it's not just a matter of whether you die from this disease or not. Having this disease can have complicated downstream complications for a, a lot of people. And even when you have it, it just it isn't fun and it's scary. Uh, and I sort of salute her anyway for bringing that up. So, John, one thing that hasn't happened is that Governor Lamont himself apparently has not been tested, although he was standing next to uh, or very near to Congresswoman uh, Johanna Hayes on Sherwood Island, I think on September 10th as part of September 11th observances. Are you surprised that he didn't go get a test? I, I am. Uh, I, you know, I, I saw that picture of the lieutenant governor, I believe, uh, Congressman Himes, uh, state senators, Tony Wong and Will Haskell were there. I know that uh, state Senator Will Haskell um, did get tested out of precaution. He, he put that on his social media and that he came back negative. Um, I, you know, I haven't read through all of the contract tracing protocols, um, but I would think that the governor would have said, um, you know, I, I'm going to, and I know he's been tested before, um, but I'm going to take a test out of precaution. I was, you know, right next to someone, even though they were both wearing masks, um, because that's what we want people to do. Um, I, I think he probably should have done it just as an example of the best practices. Um, you know, obviously, I think the governor is more protected than other people. He should be in terms of who's around him and all of that. But I, I think he should have done it. Uh, I mean, at this point, Christine, he's 13 days out. Um, he actually still could legitimately get tested, although we're kind of running uh, out of time before he would become uh, A, infected and B, symptomatic. But it's an interesting point that John is making, that there's also just sort of a modeling issue. It's kind of like, OK, this thing happened, so I better go get tested. Yeah, um, you know, he said that he's been tested three times before um, and he didn't feel that it was necessary um, to go get tested for this time. Um, you know, they do say that, you know, in contact tracing that they are only they're only interested in people you've had a conversation with within a six foot um, perimeter for more than 15 minutes. So, you know, maybe his interaction with her at this event was was not prolonged or, or for any long period of time. And it was outside and they both had masks on. So, um, you know, he, he felt safe not getting a test, but, you know, he could have just driven by St. Francis on the way back to, um, you know, the mansion in Hartford and, and gotten a test at any point. The um, yeah, I, I, by the way, I think that the, his explanation is, is, you know, pretty much okay. Outdoors, masked, it doesn't really fit the pattern that where you would re require a test. On the other hand, he shouldn't say things like, I've been tested three times 
already because that's a completely meaningless consideration in a situation like this. Your previous negative tests have nothing to do. I mean, every PCR test is only as good really as the moment you get it. You know, you're, you could develop symptoms from an infection you acquired prior to the PCR test after you get done with the PCR test. There's all kinds of things that could happen. So he shouldn't say, well, I've been tested three times already, at least not as a way of explaining uh, something like that. Well, meanwhile, John, Johanna Hayes is actually, you know, like everybody else in Connecticut who's an elected official, she's got a race to run uh, in the 5th District. It's probably, especially given the fact that she's new, she hasn't had a chance to really uh, embed the way everybody else in the Connecticut congressional delegation has. She's she's probably going to have to fight harder to defend her seat than her other four peers uh, here in Connecticut. She's got a candidate named David X. Sullivan with kind of an interesting background. And he's He's taking the fight, to, uh, you know, to the people pretty hard, I think, although some of the rhetoric that he's used has surprised me. He talked about uh, how the violence of Portland and Seattle and New York could come to the streets of Avon and Simsbury and Farmington, which I don't know. I, <laughs> I think there's a very interesting way to run a race in the 5th District. I'm not sure exactly that that's it. Well, I, first, I, I agree with all, with you on all points. Um uh, David Sullivan is a very good challenger um, for the Republican Party to put forward. We don't we haven't been putting forward uh, a lot of good challengers for congressional seats lately. Um, and uh, Congresswoman Hayes is in her first term, which is when you are most vulnerable. Um, I do think COVID has upended, obviously, uh, how everyone campaigns. And I think that's a great advantage to incumbents because it's much harder for challengers just to get out there uh, and make a name for themselves. Um, maybe that explains why some of the rhetoric is over the top to try to get attention. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I live in a suburb in Connecticut. I do think people, um, you know, uh, respect uh, our police departments and what they do. Um, they're, they also acknowledge some of the very real problems in policing around our country. Um, but I, I think talking about what's happening in places like Portland um, is important on a national level, but I don't think you need to say it's going to be coming to every suburban town in Connecticut because it's not going to happen. No, I mean, I don't think in Simsbury they're going to be yelling, let's fire up the Volvos and go stomp some squares. Um, right, but, but I, this is sort of just a quick follow up. I, yeah. I obviously think, and Christine can talk about this too. You know, the, the police accountability bill that passed in Connecticut is going to be a talking point in many legislative races. Um, and some of the polling uh, that I've seen, uh, I haven't seen it, I've been told it, um, points to the fact that uh, swing voters in these suburbs um, want to fund their police departments and want to make sure they're safe. Um, I think that's a real legitimate discussion and political argument to have. I don't think you need to have it by um, going over the top and saying, you know, we're going to be having, you know, rubber bullets shot at people in the streets of Simsbury. I think that's going a little bit too far. 
Yeah, Christine, it, first of all, I think John's point is is a good one, but it's probably a better one applied to actual General Assembly races. Uh, Johanna Hayes would have no actual tangible connection to Connecticut's uh, police um, accountability bill. Um, but but it do, also does raise the question, you know, I mean, we've seen so many of these congressional races in Connecticut, Christine, and it is so tough for the Republican challenger to get any kind of traction under his or her wheels. Uh, it's the numbers don't really work work very well. Some of the candidates haven't been all that stellar. Republicans are saying, a lot of Republicans are saying what John is saying right now, that they see this guy Sullivan as maybe being a little bit uh, tougher and more substantial than some of the people who've run in the past. And yeah, with the first term incumbent, uh, you've got an opening. This is, Christina, I, I think it's interesting just to see how you decide to use whatever advantage you've got in a, on a field that's basically tilted against you. Yeah, I think that Republicans um, just in general are going to have a problem this year, um, you know, w- with the congressional races, just because Trump is at the the top of the ticket. Um, you know, Connecticut uh, voters are notorious for, you know, splitting, splitting their tickets, um, you know, voting for Republicans in local races and uh, voting for for Democrats in, in other races. Um, I, I just don't see that uh Republicans are going to be able to make any any gains. I guess the fifth congressional district is probably. Um, I haven't looked at one of Susan Bigelow's maps recently, um, but I, I would guess based on voter registration is probably um, one of the the closest districts. Um, probably more unaffiliated voters, but um, probably a larger. Uh, Republican uh, base than the other districts. Right. You pick up some of that kind of Naugatuck River Route 8 spine, too, which is a real sort of Trump positive uh, area. And uh, Actually, I think I, I well, my numbers, I'm going to go back to 2014 when I uh, tried to run for governor. At that point, um, the second district had, uh, I believe, the most delegates to the Republican convention, with the fifth district being second. Right. Although Trump ran very strong in some of those uh, valley towns there. We're going to take a little break here, uh, and I have to do it exactly on time or I'll get in a lot of trouble. So uh, this is Colin McEnroe, guest hosting The Wheelhouse. Some of you, if you're listening live at 9 o'clock, are going to start hearing coverage uh, of uh, funerary commemorations of the life of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The rest of us uh, are coming back after this break to talk about ringing doorbells in two different contexts. So John McKinney and Christine Stewart will be right back after the proverbial this. Hi, this is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Colin McEnroe. On the panel today, John McKinney, former Republican State Senate Minority Leader, Christine Stewart, owner and editor-in-chief of Connecticut News Junkie and reporter at NBC Connecticut as well. Well, Halloween is coming. 
I, we look forward to it every year. I believe John is uh, going as Roy Occhio Grosso this year. I was looking forward to seeing uh, that costume. Uh, but Halloween is problematic. It, it, it is uh, a question. Uh, do you want to open up the field to ringing people's doorbells? We're going to talk about a different kind of ringing doorbells in the second half of this, converse, this little conversation here. But uh, so, Christine, is there, is there advice coming from the government? There, uh, okay, so the CDC released its guidelines, I believe, yesterday, and it said that uh, it does not condone door-to-door trick-or-treating or trunk-or-treat events, and that um, and haunted houses are also problematic because of the screaming um, that is included with those. So the Governor Lamont has been super hesitant to uh, say that Halloween is canceled in any way, shape, or form. Um, He said that he is going to be releasing guidelines uh, at some point later based on what the CDC has already released. Um, And at some point, he did promise my five-year-old that Halloween would not be canceled. Um, And we have already purchased our mermaid costume Um, So I'm hoping that that's not the case. I don't know, you know, what Halloween looks like. Maybe we can't necessarily go door to door, but I think maybe people can put, you know, prepackaged candy on their front stoop or at the end of their driveway. um, And kids might be able to socially distance and keep their masks on and um, somehow enjoy the holiday. You know, John, I think you can understand why Ned Lamont would be uh, hesitant to pull the plug on Halloween, even though from a public health perspective, it might make a certain amount of sense. We're rolling into that whole question of living versus existing. People want to live. They want to feel as though their lives are rich and full with the traditions they've enjoyed in the past and the things that just bring them joy, like watching little kids uh, dress up as mermaids. Uh, and, And so although there might be some real scientific reasons not to want to do this, you can't easily discard the humanistic reasons for wanting to do this. Comment, please. Well, I'm sorry. I'm still laughing over the CDC's recommendations about screaming. Um, You're right. Uh, You know, what I see, you know, towards the end of the summer, beginning of fall, kids going back to school, um, there's some relaxation in um, what we've all been doing for so long um, because it has been so long. Um, I think canceling Halloween um, would be a mistake because I think some people are going to engage in Halloween activities regardless. So let's set out rules as to the best way to do it. And I think at the end of the day, most people are going to follow those rules. Um, and I just think that's exactly. So if the governor's going to issue guidance, I think that's a great idea to do it. Um, and I think most parents will follow that guidance. You know, I I do get the feeling, Christine, that some of the voices that have been critical uh, of Governor Lamont's leadership as being too proactive, being uh, too cautious uh, about COVID. I mean, I personally salute him for everything he's done. I like living in a state where the the infection rate is, you know, fluctuating between 1.1 or 1.3 or 1.6 at the very worst. Uh, but there are a lot of people who say he's done too much, that he's taken on too much power. Uh, and you can, I think you can sort of see when he talks about something like Halloween, that he doesn't want to be that guy entirely. He, he does want to have an aspect to his leadership that says, okay, yeah, we can still have fun. 
Yeah, I mean, he. I think he said it best when he was at uh, Central Connecticut State University. He said that he doesn't want to be Governor Killjoy. Um, so I think that he's really conscious of that. Um, I think that public health really does play, um, you know, the foremost part um, of his decision-making process. Um, and I think that he has been cautious. And I think he's okay with criticize, being criticized for being a, a little bit cautious um, because Connecticut's rate is so good. I mean, I think that people keep asking about um, phase three, phase three, when are we in phase three? I mean, we went into phase two on, uh, I think it was like June 17th. Um, so I think that the, the book has pretty much been thrown out uh, on the phases. And I think that we're just looking at the public health data and, and seeing what it, it shows us. And um, he's making decisions based on that. So, Christine, I'm going to stay with you for a second here because you've reported this uh, and it'll be interesting to listen to John about this because in the past he's lived it. But so you reported this week on the other circumstance, one of the other circumstances in which a non-costumed stranger might come and ring your doorbell. And that would be to run for a political office. Uh, It's much more the province of people uh, running for the General Assembly than probably running for Congress or God knows president. Uh, But it is a big part. Door knocking is a really uh, a big deal in retail politics. So you uh, looked, I think you focused specifically on two different candidates, one in West Hartford, one in Enfield. But uh, say a little bit about what you've uh, what you discovered. So I thought it was really interesting that, you know, both both candidates, different parts of, of the state and um, different parties um, you know, door knocking is really important. And even though, you know, they've tried to embrace some of the other ways of contacting people, you know, phone um, and internet, uh, really you can't get rid of door knocking if, if you want to make an impact. Um, candidates, retail politics, it's, it's everything uh, for these candidates. So, um, and making that connection, people were actually really kind of they want, they've been kind of quarantined in their houses, not really, but they've been, you know, in, in their own bubbles and they've actually really wanted to engage with people and talk to people. And you can do that socially distanced on your front lawn. Um, so I don't think that the um, door-to-door is going away. What's really interesting is that uh, absentee ballots go out on October 2nd. So these candidates really only have two more weeks to make their impression before people start voting. I mean, Connecticut's never had early voting, but now that people can vote by absentee and and send that back starting on October 2nd, um, you know, people are going to be making decisions sooner than November 3rd. You know, John, I kind of misspoke when I said I just realized now when I said this is mainly a General Assembly thing. And actually, I'm flashing back uh, to some time that I spent riding around in the backseat of a car uh, with, with your late dad, who running for Congress, I don't think we he rang doorbells that day, but there was a lot of like standing out in front of the supermarket, waving at people and saying hi to people. And this is just a big part of campaigning: is getting your face in front of another person's face. The problem is, this is exactly what you're not supposed to do right now. And you can't go to the Goshen Affair and do it. And you can't easily probably go to a supermarket and do it. So. Um, I'm guessing that some politicians regard that with a certain measure of relief. You mean, I don't have to do all that stuff this time, but it's a problem. I assume it's a, it's a huge problem. And, and if you're, if you're relieved that you don't have to do it, you shouldn't be running for office. Uh, um, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, when my dad was in Congress in the seventies and eighties, I think the most he ever spent on a congressional campaign was 
about $400,000 and you actually had to, you know, print off the letters, put them in the envelopes, lick the envelopes and put a stamp on them just to talk to people. So um, it was easier back in the day to, and I used to do it. I would stand in front of the most popular Dunkin' Donuts in the town of Fairfield. I would go to the transfer stations, better known as the dump on a Saturday morning. Um, and you would just stand there and, you know, talk to anybody who wanted to talk to you. Um, I don't see that happening this year. I am um, surprised at, uh, I talked to one Democrat, one Republican this past week. They're both uh, door knocking. I was surprised that there is as much door knocking going on. Um, and essentially what they're doing is they're approaching a house with a mask. They're knocking on the door. They're then stepping back, you know, 30 to 40 feet as far as they can. Um, and when a person comes out just saying, hi, you know, I'm state senator so-and-so, if you'd like to talk, great. If not, can I leave you my material? So I'm happy that's hap going on. And uh, I, I think we're going to find out, uh, Colin, it'll be interesting. You know, 2016, despite um, Hillary Clinton defeating Donald Trump easily in Connecticut, um, Republicans made significant gains in the legislature. Um, I think there's going to be less, quote unquote, ticket splitting in 2020. I think the country and even Connecticut's become more partisan. Um, I think because of less interaction with voters, people would then sort of decamp into either voting party lines or voting for the person they know, which is usually the incumbent, not the challenger. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works. But, you know, from a state rep, state Senate race, you know, I can tell you, I got votes from people, regardless of what party they were, because they met me, they had talked to me, and they liked me. Um, votes I may not have ever gotten if I hadn't knocked on their door. So, you know, uh, to John's point, Christine, one of the things that surprised me about your piece for NBC30 was that the candidate in Enfield was not masked. Like if somebody without a mask shows up and rings my doorbell, I'm not answering the door. Not because, I mean, I understand the risk of transmission outdoors is lower and this candidate was stepping back once the door was opened and all that stuff. But to me, somebody who's not wearing a mask is sending a signal like, well, maybe I don't even really take the pandemic seriously. Uh, I was very surprised to see her ringing unmasked. Was that just for one TV shot or was she doing that generally? Um, she was uh, doing that. It was it was on her street, and we did give the person we were um, knocking on their door a call, heads up, oh, okay. um, to ask if if we could come over and knock on their door. So, so the person who who had their door knocked on was aware that she was coming to the door. Yeah. I think John's point is a really good one that this and you said it a couple of times in different, in different ways, but this is a hard season to challenge. It's hard to be the challenger this year. You just have so few opportunities uh, to uh, to get to know or have people get to know you. Uh, and also people are kind of voting from a position of anxiety. So, Christine, I think you were covering two different challengers and they're the ones who probably really need to do this work. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, they were they were the challengers. Um, actually, uh, the one in West Hartford, Kate Farrar, uh, doesn't have a challenger anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So she's she's running unopposed at the moment. Right. But, um, you know, still important uh, to get out there and, and have those conversations and knock on those doors and, you know, and, and work on behalf of other candidates if um, it, when you don't have a challenger. 
All right, we're going to grab a break here, but we want to leave a little extra time because we are going to talk uh, about the legislature, something both of our guests know a tremendous amount about, uh, but in different ways. There's a special session coming, probably, maybe, almost definitely, but are they going to be talking about the things they really need to talk about? Hello, we're back. This is Colin McEnroe in here guest hosting for Lucy. Uh, she's uh, got some things to attend to today. Uh, so uh, it's my duty and pleasure to thank Kat Pastor, who's in the studio making everything run smoothly. Uh, she is unflappable as far as we can tell. Uh, and uh, Matt Dwyer is the producer of The Wheelhouse and the person who did all the great preparation work uh, today to make me sound somewhat less unprepared. Um, so um, here we go. We have one last topic one major topic to go into, and that is the notion of a special se session. And so, Christine, uh, I'm going to have you get us started. It's it's not happening, but it's happening. What is the status? <laughs> it's a weird time of year. To, it's a weird time of year to try to do a special session. Anyway, we should it acknowledge that. It is a that. very weird time of year to do a special session because it's so close to an election. Um, so the governor has not come out with a call for special session yet. They are waiting for that. That's likely to happen today. Um, they would go in and adopt the rules on Friday, and then, um, you know, next week they would have maybe a public hearing, and then Thursday and Friday the Senate and the House would be in session. Um, and so they are looking at doing a variety of things, um, including, um, you know, changing how uh, the Public Utility Regulatory Authority regulates um, utilities uh, and bases that on performance and perhaps get people some um, some money back for their food and medicine spoilage. Um, that is the number one on their agenda. They're also doing school construction. They're also talking about the Transfer Act. They're also you know, cleaning up a few dates of things, none of which is absolutely necessary to do before January. So, so what, not so unless you want to put something on a flyer for your campaign. Yeah. Is, is that, uh, does that have something to do with this? I mean, I really am kind of wondering, why do this now if there's actually no... Uh, it doesn't make sense that they're doing these, you know, public policy and pieces of legislation when there's a $2 billion deficit certified by the comptroller of the state of Connecticut and the legislature is not doing anything about that. Because if you're making public policy at this time of year, I mean, within a few months, you might have, you, you will have a completely new legislature with, with new people in it. Um, so why not let them make those decisions? And the so, governor is running the, the state through executive power right now um, and doing a fine job, according to many people. So, John, you've lived through so many of these sessions as a leader and participant of them. Uh, this is all going to seem a little unusual to you, too. It, it is. Um, and, and Christine's correct. N none of this has to be done. It can wait. Um, I, I think the interesting thing, just to piggyback on our last discussion about the elections, I think we we could all agree without being overly critical that the the main driver here is the storm that hit uh, and the response by the utility companies to returning power to people uh, and having people out of power for eight, nine, ten days, which has happened a couple of times, is unacceptable. Um, that is something that a lot of politicians care about, but they really care about it two months before an election. So I think that's what's driving the special session is so that uh, leaders can say, 
we've done something about the utility companies. We're there to protect you. The, the question I have is, how is this going to get into a mailer at this late date? I, I don't know that it now helps them um, in, their camp, in their campaigns because it, it's not happening uh, soon enough. But that's the real driver about what's going on here. I yeah. think the, the election and responding to people's frustrations um, with the utility companies. The uh, you, Christine, let's sort of um, piggyback onto that and just kind of um, spend a moment. We probably should have talked about it during the doorbell ringing segment, but there's sort of a way in which the election is sneaking up, you know, and and it's sneaking up faster because so many people are going to vote uh, earlier than have ever voted uh, in, in Connecticut history. So John's making an interesting point. If you want to get something, splash something onto a mailer, you're going to be a little late in the process. A lot of people will have voted before you get your mailer to the printer. That is true. No, that is definitely true. So at, the, at this point in time, um, you know, if they're passing, looking at passing it October 1st and October 2nd, um, October 2nd is when the absentee ballots go out. So people can start voting on October 2nd. And I don't know how quickly they would be able to get the mailer to the printer and then out in, you know, through the postal service in the mail. Um, so there were uh, actually there was one flyer that we received, I want to say maybe 25 days after the primary um, by mail. So it was uh, a little too late at that point. You know, John, yeah. it does seem to me that, you know, to the point about the Christine's point earlier about the budget uh, shortfall, about the there's going to be probably worse revenue shortfalls than we can even, you know, easily grasp just because of all the things that kind of, you know, aren't going to fully be able to restart and just ways in which money's not going to come in. It does seem as though maybe it's the wrong time to try to do it right now, but it does look as though the legislature is going to have to move pretty fast uh, when it starts a new 2021 session just to figure out where where revenue comes from or how to make government cost less. The money doesn't really seem to be there. Well, they are going to be faced with a, a large budget deficit. Um, the legislature, when it comes to budget deficits, rarely moves fast. Once the session starts um, in January, um, the idea that they would pass a deficit mitigation package in January, I think, is unrealistic. And, and that therein lies the problem. Our, you know, our state's fiscal year started July 1. So we've already lost, you know, three months out of the year to make um, reductions in spending or if they wanted to increases in revenue. So we've we've already lost a quarter of the year. Um, they're probably looking at, you know, not making any changes until six months into the year at earliest. Um, and and therefore, the percentage of programs you have to cut increases the more you wait because you've lost you've already spent you know, the money for the first six months. So it is a real problem. They should have been addressing a deficit mitigation package, um, I think, before the end of the last session. Now, um, COVID has changed how the legislature met. So um, they, they do um, get a break, I think, on part of that. But there should have been a discussion uh, in April, May, and June uh, about looking at uh, the budget deficits that they knew were coming. Um, and I, my biggest fear, we talked earlier about phase three not being happening, is is maybe there's some kind of a phase two and a half. Uh, and what I mean by that is I, I'm very nervous that as we go through the winter months, um, particularly in the restaurant industry, we're going to see um, businesses close up, which will further hurt um, state revenue in the out years. Yes. I, and Christine, quickly, um, 
It, it does seem that the legislature has in the past dithered about possible new revenue sources that do require time to scale up. Uh, the sports betting thing, you know, the tribes ob- obviously um, can play a role or, or in fact, be an <laughs> obstruction, uh, depending on what kind of thing is out there. Recreational marijuana but you is another issue. Uh, but you feel like there might be a little bit more of a fast track for stuff like this. I mean, you shouldn't do recreational marijuana because you need the money, but you might have to anyway. Right. No, that's definitely something. I mean, you know, re- the revenue possibilities uh, for recreational marijuana, for sports betting, are something that the legislature is going to have to really look hard at. And so those are probably going to be two of the biggest issues that they tackle tackle starting in January. And, you know, to John's point, you could have at least tried to get a sense uh, of, I mean, obviously it'll be a new legislature in 2021, but sort of see where people are, figure out what the scale up is going to be. I mean, to start that process flat-footed, if in fact that's what you're going to need to do to go to new revenue revenue sources. Christine, it does seem like, you know, they, they could have done something uh, this year to kind of set the stage for next year. They could have begun laying the groundwork for that. I mean, we do have the medical marijuana program, which, you know, I think that they would probably piggyback off of and has been very successful uh, in Connecticut. Uh, and so we do have that as the groundwork. But I thought that they would have made a lot more headway on on sports betting and and negotiating that with the tribes, and that seems to be um, they they seem to have just left off. Well, I you know I think the problem with that, um, Christine, and you may even be closer than I am. I, I give the governor high marks on trying to work out uh, you know a universal settlement. Um, the problem is the two tribes have said we're going to do everything and we're not going to negotiate any other outcome. Um, that's what I see. Um, and look, the two tribes employ people in Connecticut. They've got a lot of friends in the legislature. Um, but I don't read uh, the compact that uh, Governor Weicker signed years ago as saying that they have exclusive rights um, to gaming that never existed when the compact was was negotiated. So, um, you know, there, there's an old saying uh, on Wall Street about bulls, bears, and pigs. And I think um, they're falling into that latter category on this one. Well, yeah, Maybe. I mean, you you don't. The problem is you don't want to be in court over it because that's going to slow stuff down. I mean, that's I interpret the compact the way that you do. That it was first of all that the window that opened was permitted uses, existing permitted uses, and high stakes bingo kind of uh, got that going, uh, and casino nights and stuff like that on you know for charity and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't see how sports betting uh, is is part of that menu. But if you wind up in court then you get delays and you don't want that either. So uh, we have to round up uh, that particular conversation uh, and leave a little bit of time for a tradition we have of uh, feats of strength and airing of grievances. Uh, Christine Stewart, do you have anything for us today? I do. I have a feat of strength. Um, I'd like to welcome back to the fold uh, Hugh McQuaid. He uh, had been a reporter for us about uh, five years ago before going to become a correction officer. Um, but today is his first day back, so I'd like to welcome him back. He's a terrific reporter. I don't really know him that well, but uh, I really enjoyed his work for you. So uh, that is exciting news. I hadn't realized he'd become a correctional officer. <laughs> this is an odd career arc for journalists, but maybe the entire profession uh, is changing. Uh, John McKinney, how about you? A feat of strength, an airing of grievance? Well, I, perhaps I can give you one of each in terms of, I think COVID has made me look a little more negative, but in terms of an airing of grievances, 
Um, I, I can't understand the people who understand that it's important to wear the masks, but they don't put the masks on their face the right way. Their nose is always exposed. I see them walking around all over the place. Uh, I just don't understand that. Put the mask on the right way, please. That's that's my airing of grievance. Um, and, and my feet of strength, because I may never get invited back, um, I do have to say that uh, you know, I spent 16 years in the legislature. It was fantastic, but I knew it was time to go. Um, and there are three really good people who've served a long time who are also leaving at the end of this year. And that's uh, uh, Speaker Joe Arasimowitz and the two Republican leaders, Len Fasano and Themis Claritis. They're really good people who I think have done a good job for the state of Connecticut. One of whom just got married a few days ago, too. So um, so yes to all that. And I think the um, exposed nose. What we need, John, is some public service announcements from Janet Jackson saying, noses are the new nipples. I got in trouble for mine <laughs> being revealed. You cover yours up right now. So um, I'm going to do an airing of, well, first, a feat of strength. JetBlue is going to add four nonstop flights out of Bradley. That's going to include nonstop to L.A. and San Francisco. I'd be scared to get on a plane now, but I really like the idea that at some point I could do that. That's nothing but good news uh, if we really uh, get those four four new routes. Um, a, a slight airing of grievance. Uh, people who uh, see socialism as one of the world's greatest evils uh, then are often the same people who go, well, Sweden, Sweden really handled their COVID response really well. Well, first of all, they didn't really. They had a way higher death rate than their Nordic neighbors. But also, Sweden has quite a bit of socialism in their government. It's, it's actually uh, an unfettered capitalist system with socialist overtones, but they have a health system that is entirely paid for by taxpayer money. And, and they have that kind of we're all in this together uh, socialist attitude. So, so you know, I mean, <laughs> they're trying to be a little bit consistent is all I'm saying. Lastly, a feat of strength for me is uh, that uh, I get to spend my life with uh, the best person uh, I could possibly imagine doing it with. I never say her name. I'm not saying it now, but it is her birthday today. So she's upstairs right now. Happy birthday to you, whatever your name is. And thanks to John McKinney. Of course, you're going to be invited back. You're great. Christine Stewart, one of my heroes. Uh, thanks also to the rest of you for listening. And yeah, we'll be back next week hopefully lucy will be back doing this so that i can just sit around and think up snarky things to say 